Good morning, church family. Let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 9, as we return, as we return this week to the book of Exodus. If you're visiting with us this morning, it is our habit here at Woodlawn to take books of the Bible and to preach through those books, both Old Testament and New Testament, for we believe that God has equally and clearly divinely spoken to us through both of those testaments, both Old Testament and New Testament. And we've been over the course of the last several months in the book of Exodus, and we return to the book of Exodus this morning, beginning with Exodus chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. And here we see two additional plagues that the Lord is going to pour out against the Egyptians as he continues with the divine purpose of making himself known. In fact, if we were to summarize the totality of what is taking place in the book of Exodus, look with me just real quickly in Exodus chapter 14. In Exodus chapter 14, hear these words from the Lord. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Repeated numerous times throughout this narrative is God's desire for the pagan Egyptians to know him, But God not only desires for the pagan Egyptians to know him, to whom was the book of Exodus given? The people of God, to the nation of Israel. God, too, desires that his people, the nation of Israel, might know who he is. And so as we move through these plague narratives, we move through these narratives knowing that God's desire is that every one of us, you and me might know him. You remember this narrative where we are now. God has called Moses. He's equipped Moses. Even though Moses doesn't believe he's equipped, right? Moses has a sense of fear and trepidation. He doesn't think he's the right person to go and be the voice of God to Pharaoh who himself was a God. And so Moses complains back to the Lord, surely it's, it's not me, you've got the wrong person. And so the Lord gives to Moses a helper and we see that help coming in the form of his brother Aaron. And so we read these narratives in the first few narratives as Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh and even as they execute these plagues, we see Aaron playing a prominent role in communication. Why? Because Moses doesn't believe he's the right one. And we have seen through this narrative as well, this opposition of these two divine forces. Well, one who perceives himself to be a divine force, Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the son of Re. He is and the Egyptian mindset himself, the son of God. And so you'll remember in Exodus chapter five, there at the very beginning of that narrative, 
Pharaoh responds back to Moses and Aaron in chapter 5, verse 2 with these words, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is the Lord that me? I'm a God. I'm the embodiment of a God. I'm a representation of the entire Egyptian, Egyptian system. Why should I have to listen to this God of whom I have no idea. Pharaoh is going to learn an important lesson. A lesson that, let's just be honest, church family, at times, you and I also need to learn. We don't live every moment of our lives with the prevailing thought that God is in control. There are moments where I perceive that I am in control. There are moments when you perceive you are in control and so we make declarations or we take actions. And we do those so many times disconnected from any concern of who God really is. And here in Exodus chapter nine, verses one through 12, we're going to learn an important lesson that God is in control of his creation, both beast and humanity. We've already seen through this narrative the ways in which God is continually chipping away at the theological construct of the Egyptians. He is showing at every turn that he, not Pharaoh, is in control. And there are moments, right, where we think Pharaoh gets it. There are moments where we think in this narrative, finally Pharaoh is at that moment. Okay, I hear you. I'm with you. I'm going to do this thing, when? Tomorrow. So we have hope that tomorrow will come and Pharaoh will bow in submission to God. But you know the rest of the story. Tomorrow comes and what does Pharaoh do? He doesn't let the people go. He doesn't respond rightly to God. And so we come to this narrative now in chapter 9. And this morning we're going to look at two of these, these plague narratives for two primary reasons, quite honestly. Both of them are rather brief and to the point, and we've done this already with two others, three and four, and so now we look at the fifth and the sixth plague. And here, the word of the Lord, chapter 9, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. Here is the Lord identifying himself again with his people. He is specifically the God of the Hebrews, of his people. You might think that God would rather reveal himself as the God of all people, but the lesson of this narrative, the lesson that 
that Pharaoh is going to come to understand, the lesson that the Egyptians are going to come to understand is that God is actually the God of all people. He reigns supreme over his entire creation. But here in this text, he is the God of the Hebrews. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. In this narrative, Exodus is a continuation of that narrative that began in Genesis And in Genesis chapter 12, we see God's call for a people. We see God's desire to bring to himself a people, and so he calls Abram to go. The narrative from Genesis until this point is of the building of this Hebrew people. This Hebrew people who in Genesis, under God's providence and sovereign care, find themselves down in Egypt, in Egypt, where, ironically, they actually find salvation. There they are fed. There they are sustained. But in the middle of this salvation, they find themselves enslaved. And God is reminding Pharaoh for the second time with this designation, I am specifically the God of the people you are enslaving. I am the God of the Hebrews. And this is what God says, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse, if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock. Your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing at all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time saying, and Pharaoh's favorite designation Tomorrow, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. And the livestock of the Egyptians died. But not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And look what Pharaoh does in verse 7. It's as if Pharaoh doesn't believe it. So Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. God is communicating to the nation of Israel and to Pharaoh that he reigns supreme over his creation. And in this case, the Lord goes directly to the heart of the Egyptian economic system. It would be impossible for the Egyptians who were known for using the fertility of the Nile and planting, it would be, a com- it would be impossible for them to accomplish their economic superiority without the very animals upon whose back they were dependent for planting and plowing and carrying and processing all of the grains that they would harvest. The Lord goes to the very 
economic heart of the nation of Egypt. Okay, Pharaoh, you don't want to listen to me? Know this. I am going to directly attack what in so many ways makes provision for you and for Egypt. But notice it wasn't an attack on all people. We have seen, at least through this narrative now for the second time, you might remember, we're now seeing for the second time that the Lord has specifically said that a certain plague will not affect the nation of Israel. And the first plague with the gnats, he said that I will not send these gnats upon the land of uh, uh, Goshen. So there we see Israel having a protection from these plague narratives. Now some believe that through the totality of this plague narrative, that Israel was always exempt from the Lord's plagues that he brought forth. Perhaps, but the text for sure does not say that. Only explicitly now for the second time does the text tell us that God is protecting specifically his people that his people under this plague shall not be hurt. For example, go back to the first plague. What was the first plague? The turning of the Nile into, into blood. There is zero indication from the reading of that narrative that Israel itself did not have a problem finding water that didn't look like blood. The locusts come in and devour what? All the crops. There's no indication that Israel escaped this plague. But here, for the second time, the Lord is specifically saying to the nation of Egypt, to Pharaoh himself, I am the God of the Hebrews, and in this way, I am going to provide protection for them as we come to Exodus chapter 14, so that you might know that I am the Lord, that I reign supreme. And by the way, we're going to come to another similar plague, such as this one, when we get to the very last plague. You remember that plague? And what is God able to do through that plague? He is able to single out certain persons for death and provide salvation for others, all by blood being posted, being placed on the post. You see what the narrative is communicating to us, friends? God isn't just one, as we heard last week, our Father who is in heaven. He's not just one who reigns in heaven. And in the larger narrative of my life and your life and the Egyptians' lives, he has control. Notice the specificity of God's reign over his creation. God is able to say that for my people, in this circumstance, in this situation, I am going to make provision for them and they will not experience the effects of this plague. Friends, I submit to you this morning 
that this is not the greatest example in all of Scripture and God making provision for his people so that his people and his people alone avoid destruction. I would submit to you this morning that Christ on the cross is the greatest example of God making provision for his people in such a way that only his people by faith will experience his salvation and those apart from Christ will experience what? Wrath, destruction, damnation, calamity. They will experience exactly what the Egyptians have experienced. And friend, if you're here this morning and you have never repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, you, like Pharaoh, are still living your life from a position where you think you are in control, where you reject the very voice of God. Oh, like Pharaoh, you might be able to sustain such rejection for a moment. You might be able to wither the storm for a day. Perhaps you even wither God's, uh, weather God's storm for a year two years, 10 years. But don't think that you will escape the final wrath and judgment of God apart from Christ, like the Egyptians. You too will experience the wrath of God. Pharaoh isn't quite convinced yet again, is he? Of course, he knows that the horses, the donkeys, and the camels of the Egyptians have been destroyed. He's heard the voice of God. He knows what God's intention is. But how does Pharaoh respond? You would think now, after this fifth plague, that Pharaoh would slowly be coming around to understand, would be finally at the point where he might comprehend. But he doesn't, does he? He stands in disbelief. So, verse 7 Pharaoh sends a delegation. Go out and find out for me. Did the Hebrews really escape the judgment of God? Did they really avoid God's wrath? And look what the text of Scripture says. And behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. God is going to do exactly what he has claimed he will do. 
Pharaoh still does not trust God. Pharaoh still is not believing in the word of God. And friends, this is the same obstinacy that keeps so many away from faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ today. Rejection of God's holy word. So Pharaoh doesn't get the lesson. So the narrative is going to continue. Plague number six, perhaps this time. Perhaps this time, Pharaoh will pay attention and respond rightly to the Lord. Verse eight, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kill and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kill and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians, we've not heard from them in a while, have we? We've not heard, we've not seen them in the narrative. And now the magicians show back up, and the magicians, and upon all the Egyptians, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So now the sixth plague. The first plague attacks directly the economic center of Egypt. And now for the first time, for the very first time, a plague is going to affect the person of the Egyptians. Now, obviously, the plagues affected them. They couldn't, go get, they couldn't get water. They had gnats everywhere. But that didn't cause physical ailment, if you will, for the Egyptians. But now notice what the text says. Following the destruction of the economy, now an attack is placed directly upon the person of the Egyptians. You might remember also, friends, this is the same way it happened with Job. The same narrative in terms of its fleshing out in Job's life happened first. So the Lord took what from Job first? All of his possessions. And then it wasn't until after that he was affected uh, personally with, in terms of sickness. And so here the Egyptians are affected with a sickness. And notice what the Bible says Moses did. Moses went and took soot and he threw the soot in the air. I wonder where Moses could have gained soot. Now, I want to be very clear with you. What I'm about to tell you is simply speculation. You might wonder, why speculate, Pastor? Well, I just think it's a neat speculation. But you ought to be very careful when you speculate when it comes to the text of Scripture. And I'm telling you ahead of time, this is speculation. But I like the speculation. Where could Moses have found soot? What, what was the responsibility? The Egyptians are now, the, the Hebrews are now in slavery down in Egypt. And what is their primary responsibility? What are they having to bake? They're having to make bricks or having to bake bricks. Might it be 
might it be that what Pharaoh thought would be the very means of destruction for the nation of Israel. I'm going to make you work so hard. I'm going to make you live under such intense difficulty. Pharaoh thought that he could stamp out the birth rate of the Egyptians by making them work so hard and thus kill them. Might it be that the very means that Pharaoh meant for destruction for the nation of Israel, God turns right around and uses as judgment against Egypt. Pharaoh, Moses, takes soot that he got from somewhere, and he throws the soot in the air. And the Bible says, he did this, by the way, in the sight of Pharaoh, and it became fine dust all over the land of Egypt, and boils break out in sores on man and beast throughout the entirety of the land. God's judgment oftentimes comes in the form of destruction in terms against his creation and against us individually. Theologically, we understand that this would be the case following Genesis chapter 3. Sin had been woven into the very fabric of creation, and one of the effects of sin, one of God's judgments against Adam and Eve for sin, would be difficulty with the ground. And so we experience all type of difficulties that nature brings about, that brings about incredible destructions of economies. Think this past week, we saw one of those massive devastations in Turkey. And our hearts have been saddened. 20 plus thousand people dead in Turkey. I saw a video that someone had taken a drone and placed down into one of the crevices that was created, and it had to be a football field size separation in the earth, both lengthwise and almost widthwise. It was massive. Friends, you know what that judgment, do you know what that, that earthquake was in Turkey? It was God's judgment. Do you know what happens when at 42 years old I have to start making doctor appointments and going to see this physician for things that I never thought I'd have to go see a doctor for? God's judgment. But we need to be careful, do we not? Theologically, living with a hermeneutic that understands those things to be the case, but very cautious that we not ascribe certain specific sins for why God has brought about judgment in Turkey. We need to be careful when we see calamities that happen in the context of our own country. 
that we not assign specific sins to, to those actions, or, or even when we get sick and we struggle with health. That either we individually or maybe corporately, we don't say, aha, God's been after Dirk Crone for a really long time and he finally got him. Friends, this narrative and these two plagues show us the destruction of rebellion against God and that God uses nature to execute his judgment. And you and I, as sons of Adam, experience that very judgment in our lives. And what's, it, what's, the intended, what's the intended point as we move and journey along that experience that we would hope more for God's eternal reign? As we see these narratives, both here and in culture, the right response for God's people is to declare that which we've declared throughout our history. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now look back again at the very end of the first plague to which we've looked this morning in chapter nine, verse seven, and then again in chapter nine, verse 12. We've seen this phrase occur throughout this narrative, but since we're in this these two plagues together and they occur back to back. Let's read them. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. Look at the end of verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Ten times in this narrative we read that the Lord has hardened Pharaoh's heart. And ten times we read in this narrative that either Pharaoh himself, or come back to chapter seven, uh, chapter nine, verse seven, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, the indication that Pharaoh's heart itself hardened himself. So ten times we see an act on behalf of God, and ten times you see this act on behalf of Pharaoh, what is happening in this narrative? How are we to understand the Lord's work and the use of strengthening Pharaoh's heart so that he stands in rebellion against God? We go back for this narrative beginning in, in Genesis chapter 12. In fact, turn with me to that text for just a moment. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, 12, the Lord is calling Abram to himself, and the Bible records these words. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who do what? 
and I will curse those who curse you or dishonor you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We learn something exceedingly important about the very covenant that God is making with Abram here, the Abrahamic covenant, a covenant that we would extend to all who are part of Abraham's family. This divine initiative, this promise that God gives in this text, that he's going to be a blessing to Abraham's offspring, and that he is going to curse Abraham's offspring. And thirdly, God's desire that through Abram, all the peoples of the earth should be blessed. So we learn of God's divine initiative, of his desire to use his people to make his name known. By the way, this is one of the problems of the nation of Israel, is it not? They ultimately fell at that task. In case you don't believe that to be true, go read the book of Jonah. Israel fells in that task of declaring God's glory to all people. So we see this paradigm. God's going to bless Israel. He's also going to curse those who stand in opposition to God. So we come to the book of Exodus. God is a covenant God who lives in covenant relationship with his people. God hears and responds to the cries of his people. Look with me in Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, 24, and 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, the Pharaoh died, and the people of Israel did what? They groaned, they cried out because of their slavery, and, their, and, and they cried out for help. Moses recounts this prayer of the nation of Israel for help in Deuteronomy chapter 26, for example, as well. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard the groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. It should be no surprise to us that God, as sovereign of the universe, is using Pharaoh for his own glory. And neither should it be a surprise that Pharaoh, in his own rebellion against God, in his own heart, receives the judgment of God. A beautiful depiction woven into the tapestry of this story of the sovereignty of God and humanity's responsibility. How ultimately is God using the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? There are three Hebrew words that are used in this narrative for hardening. The majority of your English Bibles translates all three of those Hebrew words with the same word that is used here in my translation, 
hardening. The primary Hebrew word that is used throughout this narrative concerning the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is a word that means stubborn or obstinate. So what you see taking place in this narrative should be no surprise. In two ways. What does rebellion, and those who do not believe, what does rebellion work in their hearts and lives? Does rebellion breed obedience or further rebellion? It should be no surprise to us that the more Pharaoh stood in opposition to God, the harder, the more stubborn his heart, his will became. But don't miss the point either, friends, that God himself is hardening the heart of Pharaoh for an intended purpose. If God's work had not been accomplished through hardening in this text, how many plagues could Pharaoh had withstood? Thank you, buddy. He said six. You really believe in the power of Pharaoh. That's all I have to say to you. I want to submit to you this morning that perhaps Pharaoh could have never withstood one plague from God. He could have never withstood the Nile turning into red had it not been for the Lord's work in hardening and making Pharaoh's heart stubborn. And how does God's work ultimately culminate in the stubbornness of Pharaoh's heart? We get plague one, we get plague two, we get plague three, we get plague four, we get plague five, we get plague six, we get plague seven, we get plague eight, we get plague ten, nine, I can't count, ten. And ultimately, what do we get? a display of God's complete and total and utter power over all the gods of Egypt so that the truth of Exodus chapter 14 verse four is true. The Egyptians will know that Yahweh is God. This is how God is working the rebellion of Pharaoh's heart to declare his glory. And friends, this is the way God continues to work at this moment. We can look at the rebellion of Pharaoh's heart, the rebellion of the Egyptians, We can see how that story communicates, ends, and is communicated with the redemption of the nation of Israel. And we can see how God's glory in a marvelous way is defined. But may I say to you this morning, 
that that glory, that that communication is revealed every time one lost sinner repents of his rebellion and trusts in Christ. That same display of God's might and God's power is still seen today as he brings people to faith in Christ. Have you trusted in that God? Have you bowed before that God? Have you pledged your life to this God? Do you see and believe the superiority of God's reign over all his creation, both beast and humanity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clear demonstration of your might and of your power. That might and that power on full display most preeminently through the giving of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have found life and that life more abundantly. And so we pray, God, this morning that you would cause in our hearts submission to you. And those, God, who stand in opposition to you, whose hearts are in rebellion against you, we ask, God, today that through your word and by your spirit, they might see your might and your power. They might repent of their sins and trust in Christ. Would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning and respond to the preaching of God's word? We see this continued narrative of Pharaoh's rebellion against God and against his word and Moses' obedience to God's word. In what way, believer, are you living your life in obedience to God's word? In what way are you living in rebellion against God's word? Would you ask God by his spirit to show you that rebellion in your own heart? As he reveals that rebellion in your own heart, would you confess it as sin? Would you give thanks to God for being that one whose power in this text on display is the same God who's revealing his majesty and his power and his might 
even this day.